Okay, I'm, I've always been interested in doing this. At the beginning of today's sermon, I'm going to do a little bit of experiment with you, okay? <laughs> if you are Canadian, and you've always been a Canadian your whole life, by birth, I want you to stand up. Okay, just stand up. Okay? Maybe 50%. Okay, take a seat. That's, that's great. Thank you. Okay, now if you were not born Canadian but have become a Canadian at some point by naturalization, uh, by, like you became a citizen later on. This would include myself. Okay, take, go ahead and stand up now. Great. Okay, go ahead and uh, you guys can take a seat. Okay. Finally, lastly, I'd like you to stand up if you are not a Canadian citizen, okay? You're a visitor, immigrant, permanent resident, Whatever the case may be, go ahead and stand up. Great. No, that's wonderful. Go ahead and take a seat. <laughs> it's, uh, it's so great to see people from all over the world come together. It's uh, people of all ages, all backgrounds, all languages, all ethnicities, uh, uniting around the worship of our God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it, it's a great picture of what the kingdom of heaven will be like. And it's such a blessing to be in a church that represents that well. Today I want to ask you another question, especially to those of you who are Canadians, okay? So if you're not a Canadian, just substitute your own nationality into the question, okay? can do that. Here's the question. What is it that makes you a Canadian? What determines that you're Canadian? What makes you Canadian? Is it your affection for snow? <laughs> Maybe your love for hockey or maple syrup? or <laughs> What about, is it the fact that you've survived many of the brutal winters like we're experiencing now, that that gives you the tough skin to be a Canadian? Does the fact that you can skate or ski or, or shovel snow make you Canadian? No, not really, okay. Does living in Canada make you Canadian? No, as we just saw, there's people that aren't. Okay, or is it that you were either born here or naturalized here as a citizen, and that you've got some kind of piece of paper to prove it? Okay, either a birth certificate or a citizenship certificate. Of course, it's that latter option, lighter option, right? It, your tastes, your talents, your language, your experience, your residence do not determine your nationality. What determines your nationality is that you have met the qualifications that the government recognizes, right? And since Canada recognizes that you are a Canadian, you are a Canadian, okay? Now, I've got a second question for everyone here that I won't ask you to stand up for. Who here is a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ? Who here is saved? Now, if you think you're saved... My follow-up question is, what makes you saved? What makes you saved? What determines whether or not you're a true Christian? Something you've done? Something you've believed? Some piece of paper you own? Something else? You may find it tricky to answer that question. Maybe even impossible to answer that question. 
But I think the answer may actually be simpler than you maybe imagined. Please uh, take your Bibles, if you would, and, and turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, it will be in verse 22. If you take it with the Pew Bibles, it will be on page 873, Luke chapter 13. But as we open up the Bible to Luke's Gospel once again today, I'd encourage you to consider this question deeply. What makes you saved? Okay? And I, just think about that. Meditate on that. Above all else, make sure you leave here today confident that you're saved, that you have that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Because there is no more important issue in your entire life than your salvation. Your eternal destiny rests upon how you answer that question. Okay? Let's pray before we start reading today. It's going to be a bit of a heavy sermon. We'll need the Holy Spirit's help. So please uh, bow your heads. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask you as we come to your word, these are words that you have written for our sake, for us to learn from, for us to grow from. And so we pray that we would do that today, God, that our, that our hearts would be open to receive from you, that our hearts would be softened. Please give us grace. You know we need it. Help your Holy Spirit to work inside of us and lead us into truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Luke chapter 13, 22. This passage actually begins with a crucial note of context, okay? It says this, verse 22. This is talking about Jesus in the midst of his ministry. He, speaking of Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Now stop right there. Okay, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Back in chapter 9, just a few chapters ago, we actually saw Jesus set his face resolutely to head toward Jerusalem. And when he did this, we saw that he was resolutely setting his face towards the cross. Okay, this was the ultimate goal of Jesus' life and ministry, to die and rise again. And this end goal of his life cast a shadow over everything else in his life. Everything else that went on. As Luke keeps reminding us, went on his ways, teaching, journeying, all the way he's going toward Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. He was ministering in many different towns, but his gaze was fixed on Calvary. Now keep this fact in your mind as we read the rest of this passage today. Okay? And no matter what Jesus is going to say here about the judgment of sinners, he was on his way to die for sinners. He was on his way to take that judgment for us. Okay? Crucial context. So Jesus was teaching, and someone, who we don't know who, blurts out a question here in verse 23. It says, And someone said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Well, those who are saved be few. Now, in Jesus' day, it was popularly taught that relatively few people would be saved. Okay? But that almost all of the Jewish people would be saved. Okay? There were there would be exceptions, of course, but they believed that salvation was primarily Jewish. That around the world, not many people would be saved, but in the nation of Israel, almost everyone would be. This was the belief. So, perhaps this person... 
who came and asked Jesus this question, was wondering if Jesus believed the same as all the rest of the rabbis going around teaching. Is Jesus, what do you think on this matter? Was salvation, or is salvation extensive, or is it exclusive? What, what do you think? Now, before you see what, how Jesus answers the question, you might be confused a little bit first about my lingo here. If you're, if you're new to church, you might not know what it means to be saved. What are we talking about? To be saved. Will those who are saved be few? And so let's address that really quick. When we talk about being saved, it means being saved from our human condition. We believe that we are all born sinners, that the entire human race has rebelled against God. We've disobeyed his rules. We've broken his law. We fought against his will every chance we got, and we are desperately trapped in our sin. Can't stop sinning. Can't get out. We're stuck. Further, we believe that God, as a holy, righteous God, must judge sin justly. He can't just let it slide. As much as we'd like him to, he can't. And the only rightful punishment for sin is death physical, spiritual, and eternal. This is the human condition. This is what we're all born into. We are born sinners, certain to die, destined for hell. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And so when we say we need to be saved, this is what we're talking about. And we need to be saved from sin, death, and hell. So the question again, who would be saved from these things? Many? Lots of people? Most of the world? Or, or few? Maybe it will be Gentiles included in this or just Jews? Who's going to be saved, Jesus? Well, we're going to read Jesus' answer, but it's not really a direct answer at all. <laughs> he has a habit of doing this. Okay, let's read together, starting verse 23 again. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Do you see what Jesus did there? He took the question that someone gave him and he turned it back on the person asking it. It was like, Jesus, how many will be saved? And Jesus answers, make sure that you're saved. Instead of just satiating someone's curiosity, he issued a challenge to them. It's like, and knowing that you are saved is much more crucial than questioning how many or who will be saved. Much more important. I have friends that will not believe in Jesus over this very issue. You probably do too. They're worried about Jesus being the only way to God. Or what happens to people who haven't heard the gospel. Or other things like this. But they're distracted from the main issue. Jesus demands a response from them. Demands a response from you. Okay? It's not wrong to ask questions. Don't get me wrong, okay? But don't get stuck on peripheral issues. Don't wonder about who else will be saved until you wonder if you will be saved. It's like 
secure your own oxygen mask first before helping those around you or worrying about them. Now, many people see this passage that we're going to read as a, a very negative passage, pretty somber, pessimistic, and it can be read that way. I admit, it's a, it's a serious warning for the most serious of topics. But I want to encourage us, as we're going to read this, to read this passage as both negative and positive. Because if someone refuses to follow Jesus, it is indeed quite a negative passage. But on the other side of things, the implications for those who are saved is the opposite. For every negative aspect, there is an incredibly positive implication. Okay? So, Jesus doesn't, doesn't directly answer this question, but he definitely implied an answer. You might have noticed that. Okay? And Jesus confirmed the idea that relatively few people would be saved in the end. And the, the difference was, though, as he answered this guy, it was probably a very different few than most Jews thought. It would be the relatively few Jewish people, or it wouldn't be the relatively few Jewish people, or even the relatively few Jewish devout religious people. It would be the relatively few people everywhere in the world that responded rightly to Jesus. That was the heart issue. That was the core issue. And here's the first major point we're going to see in this passage, that not many will find salvation on earth because salvation is only found through Jesus, the narrow door. Jesus is the narrow door, and not many will make their way through this narrow door. So not many are going to find salvation on earth because it's only found in Jesus. And I know this is fairly negative, but the positive here is that there is a door. And it's still open. <laughs> Those are huge positives. God didn't need to save us. But he does. Things aren't just hopeless for us sinners. We can be saved through Jesus. It says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So, well, while we can be saved, not many will be saved. And that's why it's so important what Jesus says here, that we strive to enter through the narrow door. The word for strive in, that Jesus used here means intense exertion, like training for an athletic event. And it's the Greek word agonizesti. Sound familiar? It's where we get the word agonize from. So we should agonize over making sure that we are saved. Does this mean that we can work hard enough to earn our salvation? No. Okay, not at all. God saves us as a free gift of his grace. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But we should strive or agonize to make sure we have been saved by God's grace. Okay, make absolutely positively sure that you have been saved. Second Peter 1.10 says, Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. We don't call ourselves. We don't elect ourselves. But we can strive to make that sure. 
certain that we are. Some people tend to think that the gospel is actually opposed to effort or, or striving at all. But it's not. It's opposed to salvation through effort, not salvation for effort. Get the difference? It's opposed to salvation through effort, not salvation for effort. Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, Christians work. They work to kill sin, and they work to live in the Spirit. They have rest in the gospel, but never rest in their battle against the flesh and the devil. The child of God has two great marks about him. He is known for his inner warfare and his inner peace. As gospel Christians, we should not be afraid of striving, fighting, and working. These are good Bible words. Jerry Bridges adds this, says, No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life, but just as surely no one will attain it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given us the responsibility of doing the walking. Thus, though it is all by God's grace, we must still strive to enter the narrow door, as Jesus says here. Do you get that picture of the door, yeah, the door to salvation, that salvation is something that must be entered into, like entering through a doorway. We must enter into God's house or eternal life or more appropriately God's kingdom. We must enter that. And there is only one door that can be entered through that will open up to the kingdom of God. There may be other doors, many other doors. But they don't lead to salvation. The only door that tends that leads to salvation, Jesus says, is a narrow door. It's a door that's not easy to enter. It, it must be squeezed through, almost like a crack in the wall. How do I know it won't be easily entered? Because Jesus said so. He said, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Many will attempt to get to salvation, but they won't get through the narrow door. Now, you might think that sounds unfair. That if someone sincerely seeks salvation, they deserve to find it. But the issue was never our sincerity. The issue has always been our sin. The issue has never been our sincerity. It's always been our sin. And there is only one solution to our sin. Our world, this is so politically incorrect. Our world thinks the doorway to salvation or or doorway to heaven or to God is wide. That all paths lead to God, or at least most paths lead to God. That all doors open up into eternal life. That all of humanity is climbing the same mountain, just in different ways. So what Jesus says here clashes with our culture's assumptions and beliefs. The door isn't wide. There's only one path to God. And that may sound very narrow-minded to you, pun intended. 
But whether or not we like it, we believe it's the truth. This is what God says. And what people fail to realize, this is the often overlooked aspect of this. People fail to realize that none of us can climb the mountain to God at all. Okay, It's impossible for us to do. And even if we could, we wouldn't. No one seeks after God. No, not one. Romans 3. Only one man could climb the mountain, and he did so when he climbed Mount Calvary. I gave this away in your notes, and I said it already, but Christ is the narrow door. He's kind of speaking in a parable here, and in this case, he's the door in the parable. In John 10, 9, Jesus said plainly, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And in John 14, 6, which we read earlier, Jesus claimed, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All other doors lead to death. All other saviors cannot save. Only Jesus saves. Many will not be able to enter because they'll refuse to enter through Christ. No one else has or can fulfill salvation's demands. Now you might decide that That is simply too exclusive or too narrow to believe. But I caution you there. I caution you by asking, is it, it's too exclusive according to what standard? Your standard or God's standard? Our culture's standard or our creator's standard? The fact of the matter is, the door may be narrow, but there is a door. And it's open. It's open to anyone. Philip Ryken says this, he says, The problem is not God or the door, but the sinner who refuses to use it. It's God's house, and he has every right to make his own door. How gracious he is to open a door for sinners at all. And how gracious Jesus is to invite us to enter. Understand this. The reason he tells us that the door is narrow is not to keep us out, but so that we will find our way through it. Have you entered through the narrow door? Here's the key thing to understand. Jesus may be more exclusive than we'd prefer but he is much more inclusive than we deserve. Jesus may be more exclusive than we prefer, but he is much more inclusive than we deserve. None of us deserve an open door at all, and yet Christ came and opened the way for us. That's grace. It's beautiful. Verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. This is sobering. This means what Jesus says is true, and likely many in our church may not be saved. 
many sitting here today may not be saved. Some people in your family may not be saved. Many that you assume are Christians may not be and will not be saved. Now, don't start looking around. Don't start making assumptions, jumping to conclusions, judging others, okay? Don't do that. Okay? We are, we're called to take people at their word. And if someone were to say that they believe in Jesus and follow him, we should take them at their word. We should believe them. We are not the judge. God is the judge. He will be the one that separates the wheat from the tares. But this is a reminder for us to once again look inside ourselves. Our you saved? Are you saved? Because many will seek to enter and will not be able. And again, the last thing I want to do today is make those of you who are saved doubt your salvation. That is the last thing I want to do. We should examine ourselves, not so we'll doubt more, but so that we become more confident. If you have been saved and you're sure of it, praise God for that grace in your life. That assurance that you have. If you have come to Jesus in true faith, believing in him and repenting of your sin, you are saved. Okay? We can and we should have full confidence in our faith. Hold on to Christ. Hold on to Him. Trust in Him. Hope in Him. Rest in Christ. Okay? Continue reading with me in verse 25. Jesus says, When once the master of the house has risen... And shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. This describes the plight of those who refuse to enter the narrow door. And those who refuse to know Jesus in this life, God will refuse to know in the next. But there's a, a very interesting point that these verses make. Again, both positive and negative. There's both here. The salvation through Jesus is a matter of being known or not being known by God. Salvation through Jesus is a matter of being known or not being known by God. This, that was the crux of God's reason for excluding some from eternal life, that he didn't know them. I don't know you. Now, of course, God knows everyone and everything. He is omniscient. He's all-knowing. Okay? He knows us all. But in a special way, when it comes to salvation, God promises to know his people. And conversely, he refuses to know those who are essentially still his enemies, still shaking his, their fists in his face. 
Verse 25 again says, when the, Once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. So this means, this verse means that there will be a time when it is too late to respond to Jesus. There will be that time. Don't kid yourself into thinking you got your whole life to come to him. You may not. You may meet God tonight. Whether this happens 10 or 100 or 1,000 years from now, this tells us that the door will shut. And then it will be too late for you, or it will be too late for those you love who don't know Christ. Again, the good news is that the door is still open. It's not too late yet. This is why there is such urgency to enter the narrow door now. This is why there's such urgency to evangelism, to preaching the gospel, to discipleship, because one day the door will shut. Salvation is a limited time offer. Like, roll up the rim. Or Monopoly at McDonald's. Except with eternal stakes. This parable talks about people standing outside the door once it's been shut, begging to be let in. Lord, open to us, please. But tragically, it's too late. Notice how the Lord responds. He says, I do not know where you come from. Where you come from. Now, we've all got defining features about us as people that give away where we're from, right? Okay, Or at least where our, our family heritage is from. Our nationality, maybe. Our skin color, our eyes, our facial features. They can all hint at our heritage, how we look. Or in many cases, the way we speak tells us more. Right? Our language or our particular accents we have. If someone has an Irish lilt or a, a Texan or an Australian drawl or a British accent, we just gotta identify right away where they're from. Right? Or there's Quebecois French or French French or Haitian French or African French or all these different ways of speaking and they give it away. And there's still many other defining features about us as well. Maybe the way we dress or our height, or our mannerisms, the way we carry ourselves. If I traveled around the world today, people might not be able to tell if I'm American or Canadian, but they'd be able to identify me right away as a North American of European descent. Right? You can just tell that. And here's how this applies to this passage. God can tell if we're his by our defining features, where we're from. Not our skin color or our accent or our clothes or our nationality, but the features of our hearts. What's on the inside? We might approach the door to eternal life one day and think, I come from a Christian home. Or I come from a great church. And we think that's what's going to get us into heaven. But those aren't the features that God is looking for in his people. You know what the defining feature of the people of God is? We're clothed with Christ. That's the defining feature of the people of God. It's invisible to us, but God sees. I am so afraid that many of us will face eternity one day and try to offer up excuses like the people did here. 
See, then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But they were appealing to their, they were appealing to their association with Jesus or, or their proximity to Jesus or their knowledge of him. And none of those are good enough. Association with Christ wasn't good enough. We ate and drank with you. Maybe for us that would be, we went to church our whole lives. We, we sang every Sunday. I called myself a Christian when someone asked me. I was Baptist. Not enough. Proximity to Christ wasn't good enough either. They're saying, we were in your presence. You were in our streets among us. And maybe for us this would be, but I had spiritual experiences of you. Or I grew up in a Christian home. That's got to count for something, right? And finally, knowledge of Christ wasn't good enough either. It's like, you taught us. We lived. You're teaching us in our streets. For us, this is pretty easy. We had hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons from your word. Or, I read my Bible faithfully. You taught me all kinds of things. You taught me to be a good person. But if we're not clothed in Christ's righteousness alone, God will not even know. God can tell who are his by their defining features. And it says in 27, But he will say in response, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Really, we're, we're all workers of evil without Christ. And we'll be without excuse. This, this is why I preach the gospel every single week here. The stakes are too high. There are people here every Sunday who are not saved and need to know Jesus. They need him. You may not be saved, and you need to know Jesus. Jesus, the one who came to earth, lived a perfect life died the death we deserved, and then rose again. All to solve that human condition we were talking about earlier. To pay for sin, to take our death, to give us life, and to save us eternally from hell. This is why Jesus came. Besides, the gospel is not just for those who don't know Christ yet. It's still for all of us. Wherever we are on our journey, it has implications for us every single day of our lives. We are still being saved by the gospel. It's what gives us the power to fight sin, to love others, to serve others out of Christ's love for us, to live for Jesus every day. The gospel has massive ramifications for us. This is why I preach it every Sunday. And if you haven't responded to that, I urge you to do it before it's too late. Now here's the incredibly positive implication of these verses. That while there are those whom God will not know, there are those whom God will know. You think about it. We all deeply long to be fully known. As people. 
We want to be known mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. That's why most single people naturally desire to get married one day. Maybe subconsciously, but that's why. They want to be known and be, or they want to know and be known deeply by another person. This is a deep longing of our hearts to be known. And God promises to fulfill this deepest longing in our hearts with himself. Isn't that great? In our salvation, God promises to know us. Those who enter through the narrow door, God will know us, and we get the infinite privilege of knowing God. John 10.14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. And in John 17.3, he said, this is eternal life, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Arguably, arguably, the greatest blessing of eternal life is knowing God and being known by him. On the young adult retreat a couple weeks ago, we heard some sermons by David Platt. And he made the point, which is very true, that in salvation, above all else, above all other blessings, you get God. (laughs) That God is the gift of the gospel. And he said this, very powerful. He said, God help us, we have taken God himself out of the gospel. We put his gifts in instead, and we offer his gifts instead of God and call it evangelism. The reality is, no matter how many times someone prays the prayer, no matter how many times they sign the card, or no matter how how many times they walk the aisle, they will not go to heaven if they don't want God. Now, there's nothing wrong with promoting the blessings and rewards that God has promised us, as long as they do not surpass or replace God himself and our motives and desires. So, do you want to know God? Do you want to be known by God inside and out? I hope you do. pray you do. If you don't, maybe just take a moment and pray that God would give you that desire know God and be known by Him. The truth that in salvation, we get God. We get God as a gift is absolutely mind-blowing. And it's what makes the implications of the next part of this passage amazing as well. It's simultaneously the hardest of truths and the most glorious of truths. Heaven and hell. Okay? And this is the point we're going to see. Salvation through Jesus is a matter of dwelling with God or being cast away from him. Salvation through Jesus is a matter of literally being with God or living without God forever. See how Jesus makes this point. He just wraps up and says, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east 
and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Now, in my opinion, these are some of the most brutal verses in the Bible. It's a description of hell. That those who choose to live without Jesus now will live apart from God forever. And it's a horrible picture of sorrow and weeping and torment and regret and remorse and rage. And it seems here that one of the key sources of this grief is actually a feeling of loss. That there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the people that come from all over the place into the kingdom of God. So there will be some kind of awareness of what you're missing out on. And what will people be missing out on? God. Dwelling with God. Being in his presence. And those who enter through the narrow door of Jesus will get God above all else, will get to be with him, experiencing the glory of his presence, walking with him. We'll get to be eternally going deeper into the knowledge of and love for God, serving him, worshiping him. Verse 29, people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. We'll get to gather around his table in his kingdom for his wedding feast. And we'll get to live lives of deepest joy for all eternally, eternally as we worship and serve him. So today, I'm not going to ask you, do you want heaven or hell? I'm going to ask you, do you want to live with God or away from God? Those are the stakes. And in case you think living without God doesn't sound that bad, think again. Because God is the source of all that is good or beautiful or lovely in this world. And the absence of him will be the absence of all that, of all joy and love and peace. There are nights that I'm driving home after a long day. Perhaps I'm coming in late and I'm hungry and alone in my car. And especially in the winter when it's cold outside, I feel this way. And I pull up to our house and I see lights on in the windows. And I know that it's going to be warm inside. Dinner is going to be ready. And my wife and my sons will be there to greet me. And I just can't wait to get inside. Just can't wait. And it's like the front door is beckoning me. It's like, come inside. Get warm. Be fed. Be loved. That's the picture I want you to have of heaven. It's like the door is beckoning you. Come inside. Clothe yourselves with the righteousness of Christ. Get warmed by God's love. Be fed with the riches of his table. Be fully known and deeply loved by God himself. 
This passage just gives us a brief glimpse, a little picture into the kingdom of God, but it's a picture of joy and rest and love as people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. You see the you can see the inclusivity of Christ again here in verse 29. That many will not be saved. But on the other hand, a great number will be saved. It may be relatively few, but there will be those who come from all corners of the earth. From the north and the south and the east and the west. And it won't just be Jews either, obviously. That's what would have been especially shocking for the people listening to Jesus in this day. See, see, Christianity is both the most exclusive and inclusive of faiths. We proclaim the truth that God can only be found through Jesus, but we also proclaim the truth that anyone can find God through Jesus. Anyone can. So Jesus isn't just for people of a certain nationality or ethnicity or language or background. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how rich you are, how religious you've been, what you've done in your past. It doesn't matter how good you've been, religious you've been, or how beautiful you are, how popular, whatever the case may be. Whoever you are, the door is open to you, open to one and all. Salvation through Jesus is open to you. door may be narrow, but it's still open to you for now. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table the kingdom of God. In verse 30 he says, and behold, some who are last will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is the climax of Jesus' teaching, and it shows us the last simple point as we wrap up. Salvation through Jesus reverses many of our human expectations. Salvation through Jesus reverses what many of us naturally would expect to happen. Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is the great reversal. Salvation reverses many of our human expectations. The weak will be strong. The poor will be rich. The humble will be exalted. And the first will be last and the last will be first. So don't make assumptions when it comes to salvation. Don't just assume. Some might be saved that you never expected would be. And many will wrongly assume that they're saved and won't be. Don't have wrong expectations when it comes to salvation. You will only be saved through Jesus Christ and his blood shed for you, the forgiveness of your sins. You will never be saved through the good things you do, the good character you grow, or your association with Jesus, your proximity to Jesus, or your knowledge of Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the what? Gift of God. Coming back to the question we started with, I'll ask you again. What makes you saved? What makes you saved? I hope you know now how you can answer that. 
If you're saved, you are saved only through Jesus, the narrow door. There's no other doors are going to work. Kind of like the way you're a Canadian citizen, only if the Canada recognizes you as one. You are part of the kingdom of God if and when God, in his grace and mercy, recognizes you as one. So enter through his open door, narrow door, open door, and you will be saved. What saves you from death and sin and hell? I hope and I pray that your answer is and always will be Jesus. Only Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your great wisdom and holiness and grace and love, you have seen to open a way to salvation for us. Where we are undeserving, unfit for the kingdom, you come as a humble servant and Clothe yourself as a servant so we can be clothed as children of the King. You clothe us with Christ and His righteousness. Your name is so great, God. We praise you for what you've done in our lives and what what you're doing, how you're working in hearts here. We pray desperately that those who do not know you would come to know you as their Savior as their king and their God. We thank you for the gift of yourself. In Jesus' name.